Blog Talk Radio. Number 45, Beacon Theaters Incorporated Petitioner versus the Honorable Harry C. Westover, Judge of the United States District Court for the Southern District of California. Mr. Cornblit, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, Associate Justice, may it please this honored court, this case uh, presents the issue as to whether the respondent in this case has improperly denied petitioner a jury trial as to issues related to violations of the antitrust laws and whether the rules of law announced by the Court of Appeals to accomplish this result are or are not contrary to the rules of civil procedure promulgated by this court, adopted by the Congress, and are contrary to the Seventh Amendment to the Constitution. The case briefly arose in the uh, Southern District of California, wherein a complaint was filed by Fox West Coast Theaters Corporation. The complaint uh, was captioned Fox West Coast Theaters Corporation versus Beacon Theaters, Inc., it was entitled a complaint for declaratory relief. After the uh, petitioner here, who was named defendant there, filed a motion to dismiss on the grounds of lack of jurisdiction, and that was denied. Petitioner filed an answer in which he raised an affirmative, uh, filed an answer in affirmative defense, filed a counterclaim against the plaintiff and uh, another party, and demanded a jury trial as the complaint, the answer and the counterclaim. The grounds upon which a petitioner argued that it was entitled to a jury trial as the complaint as to the complaint standing alone were as follows. First, that the uh, Seventh Amendment guarantees a jury trial as to actions of law, actions of common law. This was an action for declaratory relief, which is not an action of common law, nor is it an action traditionally known as an action in equity that the right to trial by jury in an action for declaratory relief turns upon the basic nature of the case and turns upon the, the kind of a case for which the declaratory action is a substitute. <clears throat> that in this action, it was apparent from the face of the complaint, from the allegations contained therein, that uh, it was a substitute for an antitrust damage suit and that its basic issues were those issues, and that since under well-established rules in antitrust damage suits, a, a plaintiff and defendant are both entitled to a jury trial, that therefore plaintiff or defendant petitioner here was entitled to a jury trial. The complaint to make this point was uh, not a very lengthy one. It alleged uh, first that it alleged first that it was brought uh, under the declaratory relief uh, provisions of the judicial code. This is page, page 10. The complaint appears in our record. It alleged first that it was brought under the Federal Declaratory Judgment Act. Uh, it was entitled Complaint for Declaratory Judgment. But in the second paragraph of the complaint, 
after the first, uh, as one sentence, there was alleged that there was a controversy in excess of $3,000, and that the matter in controversy arises under the law of the United States, to which sections 1 and 2 of the Act of Congress of July 2nd, entitled an act to protect trade and commerce against unlawful restraints and monopolies, commonly known as the Sherman Act, and section 4 of the Act of October 15, 1914, a mandatory thereof, commonly known as the Clayton Act. That uh, section, four, section 4 of the Clayton Act is the statute which gives private persons who are injured by violations of the antitrust laws a right to sue. It is the damage provision of the antitrust laws relating to private individuals. So that in paragraph 2, there is a rather straightforward statement that the complaint arises under the antitrust laws and under the section of the Clayton Act, which gives a private right to damages. The complaint then alleged that uh, described the parties. The plaintiff, Fox West Coast Theaters Corporation, is a company organized in, uh, operates in the neighborhood of 150 motion picture theaters, primarily on the West Coast. The defendant, Beacon, operated a theater, uh, opened a theater, a drive-in theater, just outside of San Bernardino, California, where Fox West Coast had for many years operated a conventional theater, as a theater with four walls and a ceiling. The complaint alleged then that uh, there were eight major companies in the United States that produced film, and these were the and the complaint expressly stated that uh, they constituted in the aggregate. This is at page 13 of the record. Constituted in the aggregate the major distributors of motion pictures in the United States. Thereafter, the complaint alleged that there had been a prior antitrust case between the government and these major suppliers of motion pictures. It was the case known as United States against Paramount, which, which uh, started in the district court, came to this court, went back to the district court, ultimately affirmed. It was then alleged that there was a dispute between the parties. The complaint alleged that the plaintiff, Fox West Coast Theaters Corporation, had for many years operated a theater in San Bernardino on what was known as a first-run and clearance basis. That is, Fox West Coast had for many years licensed from these major distributors the uh, privilege, or whatever you will call it, or at least there was a practice at that time, to license to it a first-run. This court has uh, reviewed that problem often. First-run is the right to exhibit a picture exclusively um, first and a license clearance. Clearance is an agreement it's defined in the cases and recognized in the industry as an agreement between a distributor of motion pictures and an exhibitor. The two parties agree that during the time that that exhibitor will exhibit a motion picture, that no other theater will be permitted to exhibit that picture for a given period. It's in the nature, it's been called, analogized to the common law agreements um, not to compete. That is analogized to those cases where a seller of a business selling goodwill agreed with the buyer that he would not compete for a given period of time. The court will recall those, those, um, those agreements were held uh, finally to be unlawful if unreasonable. That is, if extended in too far, uh, too great an area or extended in too length of time. Um, they were analogized, they have been analogized by this court to those common law unreasonable restraints of trade. And uh, the courts have held in the motion picture industry, this court among them, that uh, 
such clearances were lawful if reasonable, unlawful if unreasonable. One aspect of unreasonability the courts have held is whether the clearance is granted between theaters that are not substantially competitive. Again, analogizing it to the common law rules. For if an agreement by a seller of a business uh, as to goodwill, that if there was an agreement that he would not compete within an area broader than, there was than was necessary, such agreements were not enforced because they were unnecessary and because they were basically restraints of competition. And since they were unnecessary, they would not be un enforced uh, by the courts or they would then be unreasonable. That rule of law, namely that the clearances between theaters which are not substantially competitive is, un is an unreasonable restraint of trade, is a proposition of law which I understand neither party to contest here based upon this court's decisions and the recognized decisions in other courts. And so the complaint alleged that for many years Fox West Coast had operated the, its theater on this basis of an exclusive run-in clearance over theaters in the area. And it, would, it was alleged that a controversy had arisen because of the, of the opening, because a theater, a new theater was about to come into existence, namely Petitioner's Theater here, a drive-in theater located some 11 miles from downtown San Bernardino. The allegation was that um, the Petitioner, Beacon Theaters, made this contention. It contended that its drive-in theater was not and would not be substantially competitive with the downtown San Bernardino Theater. And that it contended, therefore, that if any distributor granted clearance, entered into in a restrictive agreement, as I've described, such, a, such an agreement would be unlawful under the antitrust laws. The complaint alleged that Fox, on the other hand, took a contrary position, that uh, it contended that those two theaters were not substantial, uh, were substantially competitive, and that, therefore, if either of them licensed a first run, and either of them obtained an agreement, a clearance agreement, that such an agreement would not be unlawful within the meaning of the law. The complaint uh, then alleged that uh, in restated this proposition in terms of rights. That is to say, it stated that, uh, that uh, the plaintiff, Fox West Coast, uh, contends that it has an equal right with Beacon to negotiate with each distributor independently for that prior run-in for clearances between the two theaters. The, uh, this was the end of uh, this, after the completion of this paragraph, there then was alleged a paragraph, Roman 12, which became of some importance to the Court of Appeals, which is why I mentioned it. It was alleged in this paragraph, in the next paragraph, that Petitioner, Beacon Theaters, had threatened Fox West Coast and had told Fox that it, that it had threatened the distributors, that if any distributor granted clearance between these two theaters, that the petitioner, Beacon, would file an antitrust case, a damage antitrust case, against, against any distributor who so did. While it's not alleged, you will recall that in the prior paragraph, it is alleged, but not in this paragraph, that the difference of opinion was as to whether the theaters were competitive and such a clearance would be unlawful. And so it was alleged that Petitioner told Fox and told Fox that it had told the distributors that if any such uh, contract was entered into, it would file a damage suit under the antitrust laws. It was then alleged that these threats, which as alleged in the complaint, were made to Fox, 
Fox had been in informed that we had threatened the distributors, it was alleged, that these threats exercised a coercion upon the distributors and resulted in the fact, and resulted in depriving Fox from obtaining first run and clearance uh, in that area. Uh, the complaint then alleged the following. The plaintiff is without any speedy or adequate remedy at law and will be irreparably harmed unless, I'm quoting, defendants and his officers, agents, and employees are restrained and enjoined from instituting any action under the antitrust laws against plaintiffs and said distributors or any of them based upon the facts here and above alleged during the pendency of this action and until such time as the court shall determine whether or not the plaintiff and defendant have an equal and correlative right to license a prior run with clearance on behalf of their respective theaters. This is the body of the complaint in which the allegation is made that, that unless the plaintiff, the petitioner here, Beacon, is restrained from suing for damages under the antitrust laws during the pendency of the case, that there will be irreparable injury. Thereafter, the complaint uh, set forth its prayer. The prayers uh, are fairly simple. First one asked the court, the word is used to decree, that a grant of clearance between a first-run theater in San Bernardino, between, between the Fox Theater and the Petitioner's Theater, is not a violation of the antitrust laws and is not a violation of the decree in the Paramount case. Secondly, that it be de decreed that the distributors are each of them entitled to negotiate with the plaintiff and defendant and other operators of theaters in the competitive area equally for a prior run in said area. Third, that the court declare such other rights. Four, that pending final decision of the court herein, defendant Beacon and his theaters and its uh, officers, agents, and employees be restrained and enjoined, again, from commencing any action under the antitrust laws against plaintiff and the distributors here and above named arising out of the facts or controversies. This was the complaint. And the petitioner here, Beacon, when it made its demand for jury trial in the trial court, as to the complaint, took a very simple position. It stated uh, that this was a complaint for declaratory relief, a complaint for declaratory in a complaint for declaratory relief, if the action is a substitute for a suit at law, namely a suit for damages under the antitrust laws, that the petitioner is entitled to a, that, that uh, the defendant, either side, was entitled to a jury trial, and that this was, on the face of the complaint, an action for declaratory relief, brought under the section of the antitrust laws relating to private damages, and was nothing, and that therefore we were entitled to a, to a jury trial. I might point out, uh, it may not be an important point, uh, the complaint, I might say, was not verified. Uh, this may be of some significance because Rule 65 of the Federal Rules provides that if you want a preliminary restraining order, you've got to verify or you've got to put in an affidavit. During the entire pendency of these proceedings, all the time the matter was in the trial court, no application was made for an injunction to restrain us from filing an antitrust case or any other kind. And no pleading, no papers were filed which would have sustained such a, uh, such a, such a, a request. The uh, argument that we were entitled to a jury trial on, this, uh, on the complaint standing, uh, standing alone was based not only upon the, these allegations, which seemed straightforward, based upon the analogy of the common law to the common law covenants not to compete, based, based upon, also upon the fact well known to, these, to Fox West Coast 
that these problems of, of uh, restraints of trade by clearances have long been litigated in damage cases. That is, is a fairly common, common matter that appears in case after case uh, involving these, uh, uh, involving pops. Yes, sir. Before you filed your counterclaim, uh, it was uh, it was uh, endorsed upon the same pleading, Your Honor. But this uh, this demand for a jury trial was independently of the uh, issues raised with the counterclaim. In other words, you said you were entitled yes. to a jury trial, just as if you'd filed no counterclaim. That's correct. That's and correct. Since the uh, is that issue before us? Yes, Your Honor. Squarely raised by the uh, first issue was raised in our brief. Um, the, um, I was saying that the, um, the matter of, um, of the trial, of issues of substantial competition and clearance had long for many years been part of the damage cases brought by litigants where they thought they had a right. A, uh, a typical case in this connection is one that we cited, cited in our brief. It's the case of J&J Theaters, Inc., a Second Circuit case, 212 Fed 2nd 840, in which uh, the, uh, in that case, the contention was by an individual theater that uh, uh, it was unlawfully being deprived of the opportunity to play pictures on a given run by reason of unreasonable clearances and clearances over its theater, which was not competitive. In that case, the instruction was given as follows, which is of some interest, is to demonstrate the way in which this issue arises. If you find that this, there, there was substantial competition between the two theaters, then plaintiff has failed to establish the element that the prior run clearance in favor of the Park Plaza over the Luxor was unreasonable, and your verdict should be for the defendant. That is, the issue is one of unreasonable restraint of trade. If there's a conspiracy to impose clearance and the clearances between theaters if we're not competitive, you've got an unreasonable restraint of trade. That issue, I might say, goes not only to the unreasonable restraint of trade, but of course to the issue of conspiracy itself. Because if a court were to conclude, or a jury, prior fact were to conclude, that these clearances were unreasonable and that they were uniformly granted, a trier of fact would be entitled to infer, not required to infer, as this court held in the Theater Enterprises case, but entitled to infer that it was pursuant to a conspiracy in the sense that you can infer from uniform, unreasonable acts in a business circumstance, you put the, the picture together, a jury is ordinarily permitted to make such, such an inference. So that this issue has been litigated, Keep on regularly litigated as part of private treble damage cases in jury trials and known by the plaintiff, Fox West Coast, to be, to, uh, that fact was known by them. Their company has been the defendant in a number of antitrust cases, as the major distributors have, arising out of this court's, uh, of the anti out of the Sherman Act, as well as out of the Paramount case itself. When uh, in a we made a demand for jury trial after the complaint and the answer, uh, in the answer, I might say, we raised uh, the fact that the plaintiffs were violating the antitrust laws. We filed an affirmative defense, which said we thought that they were violating the antitrust laws, and then we filed a counterclaim. It's one document, the answer, affirmative defense, and counterclaim, and endorsed upon the document is request for jury trial as the complaint, the answer, and the counterclaim is expressed. The counterclaim raised the antitrust issues and sought damages as well as 
other injunctive relief. The uh, proceedings uh, then uh, took place as follows. The uh, motion was filed to strike our demand for jury trial as to the complaint and the answer. The motion was granted. The motion was filed to strike our allegations and our answer and affirmative defense that the defendants were violating the antitrust laws. This motion was granted. The motion was filed to sever the complaint from the counterclaim and to try the complaint first, the head of the counterclaim. And this motion was granted. The, uh, upon this motion, these motions, uh, I, I've, just, I've broken them up, but of course the motions were in one. And there were three parts. I've described them independently. We filed a, uh, a petition for writ of mandamus in the Court of Appeals. We uh, based our request uh, for mandamus upon this Court's uh, seemingly long line of opinion decisions, which uh, said, and, uh, and other Courts of Appeals, including the Ninth Circuit, which seemed to indicate that in jury trial matters, where jury trial had been denied, that that was one of those exceptional issues, which courts of appeals should hear by way of mandamus. Uh, I might say that the Court of Appeals never passed upon that question. That is, when they ultimately... What decisions in this court do you rely on for that proposition? Um, I rely primarily, Your Honor, on the line of cases beginning with, with ex parte Simmons. Now, I will submit that that was mandamus out of this court and not mandamus out of the Court of Appeals. Uh, there has not been any, there have not been any law to the effect that really makes a distinction between the two, and the Courts of Appeals that have granted mandamus in jury trials have argued that there is not a distinction between the two. The point that I, I, I wish to make is that I do, don't believe that that question is before you here unless you conclude that it's a matter of jurisdiction of the Court of Appeals, because there is no cross-petition of certiorari in this case. There is no issue raised that there was that the discretion was abused because the Court of Appeals distinctly refused to pass upon that. It went to the merits of the case without passing upon whether in its discretion it would or would not issue mandamus, and they said so in their opinion. And we didn't raise that question, and when we raised our three questions in the petition for certiorari, no cross-petition was filed uh, by the other side, and if the matter was, a, and, and therefore, no issue of the willingness or unwillingness to exercise discretion is, I believe, before this court at this time. In the Court of Appeals, when uh, we filed, I might say, an application for leave to file the writ of mandamus, the Court of Appeals to the Ninth Circuit follows that practice. I, I'm not sure that it's not filed, followed everywhere, but at least it is in the Ninth Circuit. You just can't file automatically, and they, they considered it, and they decided we ought to be granted leave. We permitted to file a petition. And the respondent judge was ordered to show cause why, why uh, the petition shouldn't be granted. Uh, he filed a response. Hasn't uh, the statute been changed since uh, this court decided ex parte Simmons? Yes, the uh, uh, the statute uh, the statute has been changed. Although the language of, of present of the present mandamus statute, I don't think uh, changes the the ultimate result. At least I felt that. Uh, Levi versus Howes, although it was a subject of considerable uh, argument, uh, uh, indicated that, that there was at least a power in the Court of Appeals to act, that the question was to be one of discretion. And um, uh, again, uh, that issue of the exercise of the Court's discretion has not been brought here, in my judgment, uh, in this case. The Court of Appeals um, 
after, I might say, keeping the matter under consideration for some time, because I think the court thought it was an important question, rendered its uh, opinion, and it, uh, it denied our petition for mandamus. Uh, what the court did was to say in the first place that uh, we were right. If this complaint had only been a complaint for declaratory relief, the court said we were right. That is to say, you can't, in a complaint for declaratory relief, reverse positions and destroy the right of jury trial. You can't anticipate a case and destroy the right of jury trial by suing a declaratory relief. But the court said that uh, this really wasn't an action for declaratory relief. This was an action which it was willing to label, quote, inequity, end quote. Uh, and the basis for the contention that the, that the whole case was in was inequity is the paragraph 12, in which the... No, sir. It may be inequity. It may be either. Either inequity. Yes, sir. Um, the Court of Appeals held here that uh, this action was inequity based upon the uh, allegations of paragraph 12 of the complaint. That is to say, the allegations that the petitioner here threatened Fox with an antitrust case, that that had interfered with their business. But the court went further. In holding that this was inequity, the Court of Appeals did not say that the issue of the threats alleged alone would be tried by the court, but all of the issues in the complaint would be tried by the court without and, and no jury. That is to say, the issues of unreasonable restraint of trade, the issue of substantial competition, would be tried by the court, as well as the question of the threats and whether some kind of an injunction should be issued. Now, I might point out that the court ignored the fact that the only prayer in the complaint and the only substantive allegation of the complaint asked for an injunction pendente lighting. There was never a single prayer for a permanent, for any permanent injunctive relief. Just during the course of the proceedings, and yet the Court of Appeals used this paragraph of the complaint and that prayer, unless it relied on a general prayer, to conclude that the whole case was thereby inequity. Judgment. Yes. Uh, and hence no need for any permanent injunction if the judgment in the suit declares the rights of the party. Is that it? The purpose, yes, the purpose of that pending and light injunction would be to prevent us from filing an antitrust case, I might say. This is the prayer. This is what we're going Not the threats. Uh, the court later inferred that. But filing an antitrust case while the declaratory relief suit was being tried. But what the court did was to say that the declaratory relief issues would be tried to the court and not to the jury. And hang, hung its hat on the proposition that the, that the substantive allegation and that prayer made it a case in equity, which, which deprived us, which was permitted to deprive us of the right of jury trial. As in any equity case. As in any equity case. But, Mr. Justice Whitaker. The court was, if you'll if please, here characterizing the whole complaint by reason of this pendente lighty request, because this is all the Court of Appeals used 
to find that this was an action in equity. This pendente lighty request in the, prayer, in the substantive paragraph and in the prayer. The, uh, we submit, of course, that the, the court's uh, action in finding that an action for declaratory relief or allegations of declaratory relief which are substituted allegations for a suit at law, namely suit for damages, that such an action is converted into an action in equity and all of the issues to be tried in equity by reason of an allegation of threats of litigation is not sound, is contrary to this court's rules, and is contrary to the spirit of the federal rules in uniting law and equity. We say it is not sound uh, historically. Historically, the courts were always very careful to see to it that a complainant did not blend issues at law and issues in equity, possibly in equity, in the same complaint and thereby eliminate the right of jury trial. A case which, which makes this statement directly is the case of Scott versus Neely, which we cited, in which the court there, in that case, Mississippi had decided that you could sue in the state court in equity and become a creditor and get a lien executed on at the same time. And you do all of that in equity. And a plaintiff tried to accomplish that result in the federal court. And the federal court said, they may do that in the Mississippi state courts, but the Seventh Amendment binds us here as relates, and, and we cannot do it. And they said... Did you say that case was cited in the brief? Yes, sir. Scott versus Neal? Yes, sir. Sorry, it's in the reply. In the reply, Your Honor. I beg your pardon. Scott versus Neely, 140 U.S. 106. And the court in that case said, in the federal courts, this right, right of trial by jury cannot be dispensed with except by the assent of the parties entitled to it, nor can it be impaired by any blending with a claim properly cognizable of law of a demand for equitable relief in aid of the legal action or during its pendency. Now, of course, the federal rules of civil procedure have been designed precisely to blend, that is, in the sense of giving a litigant the right and the obligation to bring all his claims in at the same time. The whole purpose of the, of the uniting of the rules under the federal rules was to, to encourage that, to get it all settled at one time. And so whether you've got an action at law or equity, you, you bring it in. As a matter of fact, if you don't, you're barred. But... When this court, uh, when Congress passed the enabling statute, which uh, led to the adoption of these rules, Congress said that uh, in adopting these rules, you shall not impair the right of trial by jury. And of course, Rule 38 said the same thing. And there was never any intent indicated by any decision of this court that the mere adoption of the rules, which now permits a litigant to bring actions of law and actions in equity at the same time to destroy the right of jury trial. So that if blending couldn't be permitted to destroy the right of jury trial prior to the rules, surely it is not permitted to destroy the right of jury trial under the rules. And the interpretation by the Court of Appeals here has that result because 
looked at correctly, in a sense it can be, if you're going to argue that there's any equitable features at all in this complaint properly construed, that uh, that uh, that pendente relief equitable request will, per, will be permitted to result in holding that all of the issues are to be tried to the court and not to the jury. That if this rule were adopted, that it would be a serious, have serious effect upon, upon all litigants in the federal courts. The rules of civil procedure would have become a trap. Oh, Carver, are you offering this alternative argument? First, that in any event, this is really only a declaratory judgment proceeding uh, in lieu of a law action, and therefore uh, the issues to be tried to the jury, and that the prayer for pendente lady relief uh, does not uh, change. Yes, sir. And, that, and alternatively, if it does change it, then the argument you're now making is... Yes, sir. Thank you for clarifying it, sir. With respect, of course, uh, we think that uh, looked at uh, the complaint correctly, and oftentimes when these complaints are filed and deciding whether there's a right to trial by jury, there is a question of history to be analyzed. What is this complaint like? What would it have been prior to the rules? We urged in our brief, and we think it's, it's sound, that, that really this, case, this complaint, without the prayer for a moment, states no action for, for equitable relief at all. That it's nothing but an action for declaratory relief. And that paragraph 12 does not have the results the Court of Appeals thought it had. Was there any allegation of a peculiarly equitable nature that could not have been determined in a suited law alleged? in the petition declaratory judgment? Uh, none, none that I know of, Your Honor. No. There was an a statement of irreparable injury, an allegation made of irreparable injury. If but the suit should be allowed to be made. If the suit should be allowed to be made. Was there any issue in connection with the transaction which was the basis of this lawsuit uh, as to the substance of it, which would they, whereby it showed that they would be deprived of some relief that they could get in equity as a substantive answer to the charge against No, them. sir. Not in any way, shape, or form. They did. The factual question as to whether there is competition between theaters and as to whether there is unreasonable clearance is, in my judgment, a jury question. Whether it's a jury question or not, uh, was there anything to keep the court from the question I asked, if you'll permit me, uh, what I had in mind was, was there anything that uh, they, the relief they sought, either which required an interpretation by the court or a decision of facts by the jury, which could not have been thoroughly tried out in a suit of law? None at all. That was what I had in mind. The, uh, I was saying that, that uh, you could, uh, it, it seemed to me as a classical matter here, that this complaint in no way is substantive allegations even alleged a proper suit in equity. Uh, you referred, Mr. Kornblatt, to the necessity sometimes of making a historical ana analysis. Yes. I think we'd, I'd certainly agree with that necessity. Uh, what is lacking here from a traditional equitable suit, uh, what they call quiet timing. Um, I have the name right. I think I, I 
you have the name right. And uh, my understanding was that uh, Quiatimit, uh, or Quiatimit, whichever it is, you, you, you pronounce it your way. Uh, is, uh, was traditionally had to do with uh, real property. And I must say that, uh, that this is about as much as I know about, uh, about Quiatimit. Uh, but I will say this, Your Honor, that with respect to the usual, to the attempt in this complaint, to use the fact that we had warned somebody, they, they call it a threat, we can't do anything about it, it's in their complaint, but uh, that we had warned somebody that we thought that what they were going to do violated the antitrust laws. It has been the rule and was the rule at the t almost the time of the adoption of the Constitution that that kind of a, an assertion could never form the basis of an action in equity unless it was asserted. That the man who made that claim was doing it in bad faith and was unwilling to test his right in court. These are cases which I'm sure your honors are all familiar with. There, it, well, there was a long, bitter battle over the question as to whether equity could even do it, could even enjoin the second situation, that is, where there was bad faith. But no court, uh, the, no court had held that unless that you could have an, a, case, a case in equity, unless you made that allegation and that assertion, because it was fundamental, the argument was, in the case, one case that came to this court, that if you've got a right to file under the antitrust laws, you have a right to, to warn somebody of your rights, and that that warning by itself is not a grounds for an, for an injunction. That what, makes, what may turn that into a case is if you're doing it simply, uh, you're warning and then pulling back. You're warning and pulling back and refusing to, to have that right tested. But this case, the complaint on its face demonstrates that we, that is the petitioner here, was anxious to have the matter litigated. Not only does it fail to allege these facts I've simply described, but the, uh, but the contrary is directly shown because the allegation is that the petitioner has threatened an antitrust case and Fox West Coast wants to keep us from filing an antitrust case by way of an injunction. And they say they'll be hurt by the filing of the antitrust case unless we're enjoined. That is the complaint, Your Honor, uh, you can understand that this was set up in the Fox's complaint. They were describing what we were alleged to have done. And as they describe it, they're in your words. That, that is to say that if they did what we thought was unlawful, we would sue under the antitrust laws for damages. Yes. So uh, your contention then is that they were entitled not to an adjudication of that status or relation, but they had to go ahead and commit what you thought was a violation of the law before the right could be tested? No, sir. We do not contend that these alleged warnings were not a sufficient basis to go into a court for declaratory judgment. We think now that this is what declaratory judgment is for, and that paragraph 12 is part and parcel of the declaratory relief action. But doing that, we say, we're entitled to a jury trial. That's correct. This that's, is, all, that's all there is to it. That's all there is to it, and that's that's the theory that we have in this case. Well, now, doesn't uh, uh, paragraph 12 allege that their very threats of filing a suit, that your very threats of, of filing a suit, has, in fact, deprived them of the right to negotiate on a first-run 
clearance basis with yeah. the distributors. And uh, certainly if that's true, and it's understandable how that could be true, uh, uh, it wouldn't be necessary for you to file any lawsuit in order to, in order to de deprive them of the right that they're asserting. Isn't that true? Just the mere, the mere threat of it could succeed. Well, uh, I, this is an inference. Uh, this, this is what you've got to do to infer. You've got to say that the threat has been made and they want to enjoin us from suing. Now, the, the same paragraph has the allegation that they want to enjoin us from suing. Do you agree that it, that it alleges there that the threat to sue has operated to deprive yes. them of a right that they assert? It, it does so allege. Mm -hmm. I would come back to that point, again analogizing this to the historical case, that it was also always true that if you warned a man of the rights that you honestly believe you had, and I might say this complaint by alleging the dispute certainly sets up that there's a dispute in good faith. There's not a single word in this allegation that suggests that there's any bad faith on either side with regard to the declaratory relief allegations. That if you have a right to make that kind of a warning in good faith, that that may have some effect upon the supplier. Remember, if the court please, that these suppliers whom they de describe are our suppliers as well as Fox's suppliers. The allegation is made in the complaint that uh, they have the pictures. They, we must go to them for supply of pictures as well as Fox West Coast. And so that when we made the alleged, the alleged warning, the alleged warning might have had that effect. But again, there's no allegation of bad faith, no allegation that we were unwilling to test our right in court. And we suggest that under the cases and under the general uh, analysis that this, these warnings were sufficient to permit Fox to require us to test our claim in a court, but they were not sufficient to destroy our right of jury trial because the substantive issue was the same. Was there, was there a violation of the antitrust laws? Was there clearance between theaters which were not competitive? Was there unreasonable clearance? Um, that would be that would be a paramount issue. Although, Your Honor, the issue of unreasonable clearance is uh, stated is sometimes somewhat broader than merely the question of competition. Uh, there are other factors that sometimes. But I think this complaint primarily emphasizes the matter of substantial competition between the parties. That this was an issue tribal tribal at law. And I'm arriving at a conclusion that if there if there isn't substantial competition, clearance would be unlawful. If, there's, if, if there were no substantial competition, clearance would be unlawful under the cases. The determination of that question and the setting of this complaint was legal in character. Yes, sir. This is our, this is our contention. Mr. Curran, but uh, what about the uh, language duress and coercion? Well, the, um, again, thought uh, of an implication in that allegation of uh, bad faith. In the duress and coercion, which is stated by way of a conclusion, in which, of course, no facts are alleged other than the mere making of the statements, Your Honor, please, we submit, A, without the affirmative allegation of facts showing that they were in bad, that there was bad faith. You cannot, we say, uh, obtain an action in equity by, without these affirmative allegations. Historically, you never could. The courts were even concerned that you could even do it then. There were cases that held you couldn't do it even if there was bad faith. The courts were worried about whether equity was destroying a right of jury trial. But always there had to be affirmative, positive allegations of fact. 
and I know of no case which had ever permitted an implication to be drawn from a conclusion and resulting in uh, the right of jury trial being lost. But, and again we come back to the secondary point, that even if you grant that if you give them the benefit of every doubt that there's something in equity there, this has never been the basis for deciding that the substantive questions are not to be decided by a jury. Even if the court will want to decide the question of bad faith, if there is such in a court, with respect to the injunction by the court. Again, relating to the fact that our rules don't mean that you have to, that it's all or nothing. Some matters can be decided by the jury, well, some matters can be decided by the court. Even if all the other issues in the case are tried by the judge. That's correct. That's what it all comes down to. That's what it, uh, you said it is uh, a lot better than I could. Uh, um, we do put uh, some on the counterclaim, Your Honor. It's a kind of a third line of defense in this case. Uh, that is to say, we, we argue, uh, it, it is, I concede, a, a, a little more difficult uh, problem. Let's assume that the whole complaint is in equity. Let's assume that our counterclaims at law. And let's assume that there are common issues involved in the complaint and the counterclaim. That's the only way in which the counterclaim becomes material. We say if you well, sue... How would it be material then? I beg your pardon? How would it be material then? It would then be material in that we say that, in, that a suit in equity in anticipation of a suit at law which raises common issues requires under the federal rules that the court proceed in such a manner as to protect our right to jury trial. If I anticipate uh, that you are about to sue at law and I sue in equity and I state admittedly a good claim in equity, I, I, I put my pleading in, in, in ship shape order and then the counterclaim is filed at law, that under those, in that... What is your counterclaim? I beg your pardon? What is your counterclaim? Our counterclaim is for, viol for damages for violation of the antitrust laws. We do attach a request for an injunction as well, but it is primarily a complaint for damages under the antitrust laws, triable as a right to a jury. And we contend... Well, we're asking, Your Honor, uh, we would, of course, ask you to take the, the question. If you, if you rule with us on the first portion of it, we have no desire to have you rule upon the latter. But I must say that each of those questions was raised by our petition for certiorari, and all three of the questions uh, are before you. Are you raising the question that whatever the complaint charge and whether or not it was, uh, could have been adjudicated in equity when you filed your counterclaim raising precisely the same issues, that it was the duty of the court to try that counterclaim? Duty Are of you the, raising that question? Duty of the jury to raise du, du, duty, duty of that, that was the duty of the court to try the, try the counterclaim for jury. Are you raising jury. that question? We did raise it by our petition for certiorari. We, uh, I'm not, uh, these are alternative points. Each of them is raised by the petition. I have to concede that we did raise it as we came, came up to the Court of Appeals and we raised Are you abandoning? Uh, no, sir, I will not abandon it. I, uh, I think the proposition is sound. Where the equity suit is, is in anticipation of a suit at law, that you cannot anticipate a suit at law and substitute a suit in equity and thereby deprive a litigant of a right to jury trial, that here the anticipation is evidenced by the very complaint itself wherein it is stated that we warned of the filing of an antitrust case and they want to enjoin us from the filing of an antitrust case. And that therefore, since there are common issues in the, in the complaint and the counterclaim, we were entitled to a jury trial. Now, what are those common issues? 
They're precisely the same issues that were raised in the complaint. They're the question of competition, the question of clearance, which are part and parcel of the counterclaim. As I pointed out before, the, the, those issues have been tried regularly under plaintiff's case, in plaintiff's cases under the antitrust laws. They go to the question of the unreasonability of the restraint. They go to the question of conspiracy, because if you find that there is uniform adoption of an unreasonable way of doing business, surely with other facts a jury is permitted, not required, but permitted to infer conspiracy. And therefore, those issues are common to our counterclaim. And therefore, on that basis, we urge that the federal rules mean that, if you, that, that, that anticipatory filing of an equity case, raising issues common with a counterclaim, require a jury trial. And the line... Don't you find this similar situation quite frequently in the patent field where an alleged infringer will bring a suit for declaratory judgment for a declaration that he's not infringing, alleging that the patentee is threatening to sue for infringement? I suppose the answer, the reason we haven't had this problem arise, this particular problem, is that neither side wants a jury trial in most patent cases. Ordinarily. It happens sometimes. There have been a couple of patent cases, jury cases on the West Coast. But in those cases where a counterclaim would be for, by the patentee, he would counterclaim for damages for an infringement, the right to jury trial would exist at the validity of that patent. This case would be, in theory, if not in practical effect, very similar to that type of case. Yes, it would. On this last third portion of our argument. How do you say that it would be in practical effect? Do I understand that if the controversy over the validity of a patent and the patentee comes in and asks for an interpretation of the patent in equity and the other side says, I mean, not the patentee, the man who is said to have been... Alleged infringer. Yes. The other man comes in and says, I want to sue him on that and I put in a counterclaim. You mean that the cases have held that there could be a jury trial there? Yes, sir. Have you cited those? No, sir. We did not cite the cases. What's the basis of the jury trial there? The basis is that if the pleadings show anticipation that equity is being made use of as a technique for avoiding what would otherwise be a trial at law. And the theory, for example, some of the insurance cases which have held, the cases in which an insurance company anticipating a suit on the policy wants to set it aside for fraud and they sue in rescission, in equity. And the courts say that if a counterclaim is imminent, not only filed, but imminent, the usual way of handling it in the past was, of course, to dismiss the cause of action in equity on the grounds that the legal remedy was adequate. How did you have them not cited? I think they are cited in... I didn't find them. Well, I think they're cited in the brief. Yes, they are. Well, I think they are cited in the brief. I didn't find them. In your brief. I thought your adversary cited them. It's on his side. Those insurance cases. Yes. Enloe and the others. Enloe, Your Honor, Your Honor, we'll find cited in our brief. You do cite it? Yes, sir. I think we've cited Enloe specifically. That's page 31 of our brief. And I think we cite the leading case on that subject, the D.G. of an inning, a very important case 
on the subject. I think uh, I would like to leave some time for reply, and therefore we'll cease this point. You're listening to Evolution Radio. Visit MakeMoreCommerce.com for more remedies with Joey L., where remedy meets preparation. Dipset. Dipset. Mighty, mighty set. There's all the things that you got to take into consideration. They may hate on you, but the hate comes from a lot of love. Some niggas just want to be like you. But it is mad because you getting it. And they would love to get it too. But. Uh, uh, jealousy and admiration run neck and neck. Facts. Many boys say they lit, but living check to check. We on that big boy yacht, come with an extra deck. I pump cane into my chain, was looking extra wet. Stay less, nigga, stay blessed. Facts. I'm from Harlem, where all we know is how to stay fresh. Twenty years later, if you connected, I ain't pay yet. And since the young and the old head said I'm a straight threat. In front of the building, a 45 beside my gray sweats. My uncle sees when gold figure was in the gray legs. My cousin tied the first to shoulder, black and gray tech. I'm on the same shit, I keep a 40 in my gray tech. Some extra points, well, of course we sold a base sweat. And even checkers got kings, but I'd rather play chess. I jump a then I take over I left the watch inside the beauty parlor for a makeover Makeup. Tell the kitties we tired of the play play 30 and the 40, 100 shots inside the AK Shit, don't make me do the races like I'm TK Don't make me do that races like I'm TK Boss cars outside the crib Snipers on the roof, nigga look ahead Different bitches, different coops through the year The proof that I'm the truth is that I'm still here we riders, east siders, wild drivers I think them young sliders run your block Nigga, don't come out your house You broke, homie, so my name should never come out of your mouth The subject money and you don't know what you talking about Subtract dummies, my big homies love to take you out You see low riders front your bitch, girl, she mine now Jet light tattoos show you what she's about Moves made, nigga, we just trying to stay paid You just trying to get laid, me and you is not the same Word to the bird, VVS is in the wings. I just stepped off the plane and puddles of champagne On another move, another album drop, another tour Done another coup to cop, another helicopter landing on the roof I'm hopping out, another strain, a nigga making a killing off that pot And it don't stop, no brakes on the race and I'm gonna drive Nigga straight to the cake, another slice Laid on the Gucci plate, hella ice and more ice Can't see the time nor the date Boss cars outside the crib Snipers on the roof, nigga, look ahead Different bitches, different coops through the year The proof that I'm the truth is that I'm still here
Excuse me, we'll take a quick lunch. Get the tears down in Florida. We're doing that seminar on the 22nd of July. All right, and that's at the Surfside uh, Miami uh, Marriott. All right, so if you don't get a chance to make it to New York, maybe you get a chance to make it to Miami. Hopefully, we'll see you at one of those two destinations. All right, so let's just jump into it, right? We're talking about trust as part two and injunctions, and hopefully, you got a chance to listen to the Supreme Court case that I played. Um, which, you know, it really goes into antitrust law, right? And, and, you know, if you know anything about, you know, antitrust law and dealing with antitrust law, you know, the anti, antitrust deals with the collection of federal laws, and they basically regulate conduct when it comes to businesses and organizations, and they regulate the conduct when it comes to the competition when it comes to these things. So we're talking about monopolies, right? So essentially... You can't have a McDonald's on a block and not allow Taco Bell to be on the block or not allow Burger King to be on the block or not allow Five Guys or, or any other restaurant to be on the block, right? Because this is a monopoly. So, the Sherman Act of 
your own truck. And you make yourself the benefit of your Can you hear me better now, brother? Hopefully you can hear me a little bit better. I'm going to talk right into the mic. Is that is that better, my brother? Let me know. Right? So I'm going to talk right into the mic. All right? So hopefully you are the beneficiary of your own trust. Okay? And if you're the beneficiary of your own trust, it means that whoever the trustee is has a fiduciary duty to protect you. So if you set up a trust, right, and when you set up your trust, you essentially name yourself as the fiduciary, okay, the trustee. That means that you have a a a a job to do when it comes to protecting yourself. Okay? Then when you get in a, a foreign trustee, your foreign trustee now becomes the individual, right, who has a duty to make sure that you're protected. Very, very, very important. So the settler retains no further interest. Okay? So then we have what's called the interaction of these various parties. Right? They can be represented as follows. You have a settler who is what we call the absolute owner. And I'm going to get to the injunction part of this. Okay? But the settler is what we call the absolute owner. Okay? This individual transfers legal title over to the trustee. So when you're setting up a trust, when you're creating the injunction, you have to keep these things in mind, right? The absolute owner is giving legal title over to the trustee. Legal title plus equitable title, right, creates what we call the transfer of equitable title to the beneficiary. Because see, at the end of the day, you just look at this like a pyramid, right? The beneficiary is the individual who holds equitable title. So there's a personal obligation in respect to trust property, always. Okay? So there's something, you know, that, you know, and this is, this is really a, an amazing thing because the simplicity of the structure of the express trust operates in two dimensions, right? It expresses a familiar trinity, if you will, right? Between the creator uh, and an and, and angel, okay, and a substitute. So the creator is the settler. This is the individual who creates the trust. But then the qua, the settler, plays no further direct part in the life of the trust. Okay? So essentially, this is why I tell you guys, you have to make yourself, in the beginning, all three of these individuals. And then later you can, you know, establish roles that other people will play. But you don't want to count yourself out. So instead, the word of the creator, right, is revealed through the trust instrument. And this is where the declaration of trust comes into play. This is also where, because we're talking about contracts, this is where the injunction comes into play. Because you have to let people know who, where, when, and why this trust was created. Okay, so the settler or the creator retains what we call a profound influence, okay, over the trust without having any tangible role qua the settler in it, right? So, essentially, the settler creates the trust and then he steps back. The settler can also be the beneficiary, 
The settler could be the trustee. The settler can be the trust protector. But somebody's got to create the trust. Somebody has to create the injunction for the trust. Okay? And normally this would be the settler or the trust protector. Okay? So the trustee is an angel. Quad trustee. Because he or she takes no direct benefit from the trust beyond the sanction by the settler right, in advance, but works solely and selflessly for the benefit of the beneficiary. So the beneficiary is therefore both a volunteer in the sense that he or she takes benefit without having consideration, okay? Uh, the right holder, right, in that only he or she has a locus standoff. And that's a, that is, and I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to actually give you a, a working definition for that. Yeah, give me just a second because I want to make sure that everybody fully understands what it is that I'm saying. Okay, so just a moment. Because you know everything is always in um, in in Latin. Okay, but locus standi is the right to appear in a court or before anybody or on a given question, a right to be heard. Okay? The ability to bring a legal action to a court, a.k.a. the ability to sue an equity court when there's an equity issue. You get what I'm saying? Because there's always an equity issue with these type of things. Okay? Especially when you start talking about Injunctions for your trust. Okay? So anything that arises becomes locus standi. Okay? So the logic here of the trust, right, and when we talk about equity, the theory is that the beneficiary controls the trustee through courts. So the development of the beneficiary, right, requires that there is uh, indefiable beneficiary so that there is someone who benefits right whose benefit is from every procedure that happens that the trust that the essentially the trustee makes the beneficiary so the requirements of of a settler has to be what are their intentions was the intention of the settler to create an injunction initially in there Right, you can always go back and put that in there. But what was the settler's intentions? So I ask you as a settler, as a beneficiary, what are your intentions when you're creating your trust, right? See, the root of liability, right, and we talk about liability because there's strict liability, goes on the trustees, right? The liability for breach of trust, breach of contract, uh, loss of, of, of uh of occasions or anything that can that can come into play, right? Uh, was only indirectly the fault of the trustee, right? You see what I'm saying? So if you're a beneficiary of the trust, it's not your fault if something happens. If if you if you are a trust protector or a a settler, it is not your fault when somebody fucks up. It is the trustee's fault. So you have to go back and look at the trustee. When something happens, right? And then there's equity that comes into play. So this would appear to be, right, an almost judicial acceptance, if you will, right, between, uh, you know, the wealth and security of, 
you know, the, the upper class and the lower class and, and the class systems and all of that, right? Because you, you have people who are rich that have that live in trust and people who are poor who don't live in trust. Okay? So the very core of the law of trust has been questioned in recent years. So the principal questions beyond those that are raised right, are these. Number one, is the trust based on property or on obligation? And I want you to think about this when, you, when you're doing injunctions. And hopefully you come out to the seminar, right, because I'm going to show you how to do a trust injunction at the seminar. But the first question that you should ask yourself when you're doing this is, is your trust based on property or is it based on obligation? Because some of y'all don't have no property. So what's the obligation? Two, is the trust in truth a species of contract? Is your trust a species of contract? Which means, do you have a contract? Is there a contract that's been established? Well, first of all, the Declaration of Trust is the first contract. The injunction should also be a contract. Number three, is the beneficiary, a.k.a. you or your family, your kids, your wife, your dog, whoever, is the beneficiary principle necessary? Is that a necessary principle? We even had a beneficiary. This is the question you have to ask yourself, right? Number four, is there a core, irreducible content of trusteeship? Okay? Because the questions that we ask you, okay, that I'm asking are very important questions. So when you answer these questions, right, it's going to be suggested that the proper means of analyzing your expressed trust becomes apparent. Okay, so so then we deal with uh, property relationship, uh, the relationship to the trustee, uh, the beneficiary having a matrix of rights, duties, powers in relation, right? Uh, powers in relation to your property, all of that stuff comes into play. See, we got to. going to direct your mind to equity, right? Because we have to think of equity as responding to given factual situations, right? Because it, it, it is a mission that you have to observe the trustee's conscience rather than to think of the trust as being some type of abstract entity, right, which stands as either uh, impersonal or institutions and all that other stuff. It is a matter of your conscience. Some people ain't got good conscience. Where does your conscience lie at when you're creating this thing? See, see I, and I'm going to be honest with you. Some people create these trusts for, for reasons of, of malice. You should be creating your trust to live a better life, to help other people live better lives. Are you living a better life? So I know I can live a better life. So people around me who are within my immediate circle can live better lives. 
<laughs> you dig what I'm saying? See, the trust is a property relationship. On trust, I the owner of the legal title for the benefit of the beneficiary. See, but I think there be no trust. There would be no trust without this. So any relationship not conforming to that pattern is something other than a trust. So by extension, only a relationship conforming to that pattern falls to be described as a trust. Right? So, it's very important to state that the matter plainly, the son of God, right, has to be uh, uh, reiterated over and over again. Because they're going to emerge at some point in time. At some point in time, something other than property relationship is going to come up. But in your conscience, what is your conscience when you're creating and express trust? What is your conscience when you're creating an injunction? What is your conscience when you're doing the do not panic? What is your conscience? See, the trust is a hybrid property relationship. So if it were not a relationship like at all, we wouldn't even be talking about this. But it operates at two levels. The first level, right, which generates the most confusion, is the matrix of the obligation which the trustee owes to the beneficiary, right? This is what I call a personal obligation. This is between your trustee and your beneficiary. There's a personal obligation. But you got to know, You first of all, you have to be made aware of the obligation. You can't be put into somebody's trust and not understand what's going on. Somebody has to give you full details of what it is if you are to be a trustee. At the second level, the trust enables two or more people to have rights in property simultaneously. Now, that's a, that's a funny one, right? Because the trustee has a legal title, and then the beneficiary has the equitable title. This is why I'm the beneficiary and the trustee, because I want legal and equitable title. It's the same thing with the birth certificate. Who's got legal title and equitable title over your birth certificate? Until you authenticate it and put it in your trust, technically the state does. So it is the, which marks the trust out not only from common law property relationships, but also from the civil code concept of dominion. Okay? Dominion. And I'll give y'all a working definition of that too. Because we, you know, we. This is what we do over here. Right? Dominion. Here it is. Absolute ownership and control of property. Who's got absolute ownership over your shit? Corporal property by a person subject only to the power of the state and including the right to use and enjoy, the right to take profit therefrom, and the right of disposal. Nick. Let me tell y'all something. This also deals with political power, uh, lordship. It deals with sovereignty. It deals with what they call suzerainty. Okay? It deals with ownership. 
I'm trying to tell y'all something here. We got to wake up. Peace to everybody that's in the chat, man. Um, so, 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 understand what I'm trying to tell you, right? The trust was intended from the very inception of the trust to be a property relationship. It's evident throughout the history of trust that the earliest uses, right, of trust take over land, <laughs> right? So, in consequence, there was little possibility of confusion as to what the property was, right, that was held in trust. Because the trust fund was readily identifiable. Today, you can't identify the shit because they're holding people as child property. First of all, I'm not your fucking chattel. And I hope, brothers and sisters, if you're listening, that you're not chattel either. And if you decide that you're going to be chattel, you be your own chattel. Not cattle, but chattel. Right? So there could be boundary disputes as to which land was held on trust, thus Raising the question of fact Of who actually held the property Otherwise The identity of the property Would typically pose A couple of intellectual technical problems Right So If you go back and you look at history We think about uh, Earlier uses of land Right and you deal with common law and owners in common law, and the owners in common law held land essentially right to the order of the equitable owner. These people were self evidently the owners, right? And, and they had a what they call a property relationship. This is why when you're doing your, your injunction, you have to make sure that you are very, very, very precise. Okay. Very precise in the difference between equitable title and the legal title. I mean, Brother John talked about this years ago, right? So this is nothing new. But the trustee's obligations were predicated on a combination of ownership of the legal title over the land and then the equity recognition that the benefit of the land was to be enjoyed ultimately by the beneficiary. He said this out, right? And, and see, I, I dealt with this for a long time. And this is one of the reasons why I had to step back for a while from the radio, because you got your own You got your own people who will try to take your money and use it for the benefit of their own enjoyment under equitable title that they never owned. This is why you, even though you got legal title, you got to go get the equitable title of your shit, too. Because then you want to be able to, not only do you want to be able to hold the keys to the car, but you want to be able to drive that motherfucker, too. You dig what I'm saying? This is a complex subject. This is not a subject that everybody understands or overthinks. See, the settler of the trust over the land chooses to appoint a number of beneficiaries, right? Or to make those beneficiaries entitled to equitable interest. When we talk, 
they start spilling the shit all over the pants and shit, right? <laughs> so we we back, man, and, and I'm gonna continue uh, this conversation, and, and and I'll pick up where I left off, okay? But I really want y'all to get, um, and peace to the guys. I appreciate those who were listening and stayed on, all right? So. And I'll, I'm going to pick up my room and left off, right? We're talking about the relationship, the trust relationship, the property relationship, right? Because understand, like I said, that trust, express trust, you have to understand the difference between equity, equitable title, and legal title, okay? So the trust was intended from the inception, right, to deal with property, to deal with the relationship of property, okay? This is the the point of the trust is to deal with the relationship of property, right? Because it becomes evident when we're talking about property and relationships of property and all of this stuff, it becomes very, 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 very evident. Okay? In your paperwork. So the earliest uses, right, of trust took over land, right? So in consequence, there was little possibility of confusion, okay, as to who owned the property, okay? So there could be boundary disputes, right, things like that, uh, which land was held on trust, thus raising questions of fact and all these other things, right? But now, it's not as clear because people are putting themselves in trust. People are putting their, their animals in trust. People are putting their cars in trust. People are putting things in trust that 100 years ago, people weren't thinking about putting into a trust. Okay? We'll be setting up trust. So the trustee's obligations were and always will be predicated on a combination of ownership of legal title, okay, and then equity recognition with the citizen of who owns I authenticated my book. I'm the holder in due course. You understand? You have to be the holder in due course of your own property. So the question asked, right, of, of emerging trust or people who are just now creating trust, right? Become more complex. Okay? And they become more complex when the settler of the trust over the property chooses to appoint a number of beneficiaries or to make beneficiaries entitled to equitable trust or uh, equitable uh, ownership, if you will, in that trust. Okay? Because this essentially would give power to trustees, right, who may not uh, 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 need the, that type of power, right? They may not need the power to enjoy land. See, here's the thing, and I'm going to be very straightforward with you. At, at the, the conception or, or inception of your birth, there's a trustee that is put over a group of securities called the birth certificates, right? Unless you know this trustee, you never, you you will go your whole life and not know that that they got you with some type of fucking servitude as a slave. And guess and guess who gets to enjoy and, and 
ride on big fancy fucking yachts, right? Off of off of your energy, your labor, the trustee. And this is what they call constructive trust. So the question asked, right, is who is entitled to the equitable interest? And this is one of the reasons why injunctions are so important when it comes to your, your private injunction for your property, but more so the injunction that encompasses your trust. You know, shout out to Governor Bank, man, for, for bringing this information years ago, right? Because this is, I mean, this is why we're here. This is why, this is why we continue to do this work. Right. If you know somebody that was on the line, make sure you come and call back in. We're still here. We ain't went nowhere. Right? So the trustee might then be given the obligation to maintain the property for the ultimate benefit of the beneficiary's life. But also, sometimes the trustee is given the power to provide uh, uh, the, the, that part of that property, right, to be sold. And this is where I got to talk about the tenants and shit like that, right? Go watch the movie Tenant. Because, and, and this, this, this will always emerge as a question, right? And this, this question comes up as we talk about the law of trust and have simply continued to come up, right? And becomes more and more complicated because essentially uh, uh, the, the dematerialization or the dematerialized securities, okay, comes into play, right? Essentially money that's held in electronic bank accounts, uh, book debits, right, all of this type of stuff. So nevertheless, the trust from the earliest beginning was a property relationship, is then and is now and always will be a property relationship. Securities ain't nothing but relationships. Who Who's the beneficiary? Who's enjoying First of all, most times the beneficiary doesn't get to enjoy the shit because the trustee is controlling it. Who's the trustee over your property? And and, and we can talk about this outside of the trust, you know, because there's a certain decorum that comes into play. You understand? Decorum is everything. The consequence of the application of trust to new forms of property and the conceptual problems that arise have resulted from the development that is easy for our days to shift away from the, the solidity of property involved onto other issues. So this should happen in, in two ways. The first way, right, is the movability of property, right? And this has led some people to assume that there are uh, that there is a crisis, right, when it comes to trust, right? So understand that that is always going to be a problem because trust can move around. Okay. Now, in relation to, for example, uh, corporate bonds, there's a system of registration of title, a.k.a. the birth certificate, the passport, things like that, right? These are bonds, right, which have replaced the need to print and issue the circulation of physical bearer bonds. So the bond market, when you start talking about S&P's dollar dollars and all that stuff, the bond market itself has been said to be dematerialized. Because why? Because it becomes a complex matter of essentially seeking to take title over who holds the property or the securities, 
where there is property held on trust, okay, and, and, and this is why I'm telling you, you have to do a trust injunction. The only property which is capable of being dealt with, therefore, is the claim, which is the bondholder, as against the registrar to be recognized as the owner of a given number of bonds. Once you do this injunction, this stops the trustees from, from being able to take your share. All day, every day. So there, there are forms of property, right, all the time. Right, long understood by commercial practices as uh, consulting meaning items of value, which have been accepted within what we call the canon of property rights. Go look it up. Okay, but do not conform to uh, uh, this matrix that we're in. We're in the matrix. Let me read something to y'all. Okay, hopefully y'all still with me. I'm gonna read something to y'all. When we start talking about property, right, and you start looking at uh, legal title and all of that good stuff, right, you got to look at this, right? And I'm going to read it to you. And this, this comes from a book I've had for a while, and it deals with superior modes of express trust. And this is what they had to say, partnerships, whereas the law of partnerships is a branch of the law of principal and agent, while trustees under an express trust are the absolute principles, but accounting to the beneficiaries who have no powers, either as principals or agents in actual administration. So the distinction is clear and indisputable. So joint stock companies, also known in England and in some parts of the United States, are known uh, to the laws of the Massachusetts. This is where that Massachusetts Business Trust came to apply. Okay? So express trust, whether created under wills, deeds, okay, deeds of settlement, assignments for the benefit of creditors, receiverships, okay, receiverships are important, okay, just a moment, I'm going to look, okay, or receiverships, okay, or special declarations of trust, I'm going to say it again, special declarations of trust, to manage property or to carry on business are neither corporations nor joint stock companies nor partnerships, but they employ a distinct and the highest known method of administration. So although every trust must be said to include a contract, it includes much more. The purpose for which the machinery of trust is employed are so different a kind that the, the trusts are distinct in the marked in a marked way, not merely from where every other species of contract, but from all other contracts are genius. Contract law, contract of the beneficiaries under the trust, but are the personal debts of the trustees, who are not agents, but are absolute owners and principals. See, the trustees have to account, of course to the beneficiaries, but the beneficiaries have no partnership powers, and a strict express trust cannot be held as to the beneficiaries to be a partnership, but with partnership powers and liabilities. So without creating confusion and mischievous subversion of established principles. Next page. 
I'm giving. I'm gonna give you the information straight the way that they're giving it to you. Okay? The use, excuse me, the issue or transfer of the share is a joint stock company makes the new shareholder a partner and a party therefore to all contracts. Trust the certificate holder is not a partner or a party to any contract of the trustees. Your birth certificate, right? was not created by you. You just took it back into your possession. They never made you a partner. They never gave you. Did they ever give you any shares? No, what they did was they gave you Social Security. They gave you a benefit of the trust. So to my mind, the distinction between a director and a trustee is an essential distinction founded on the nature of things. So a trustee is a man or a woman who is the owner of the property and deals with it as a principal, as owner, as a master, subject only to the equitable obligations to account to some persons to whom he stands in relation to the trustee or who is his sesecute trust, a.k.a. your constructive trust, a.k.a. your birth certificate. But let me continue. The office of the director is that of a paid servant of the company. A director never enters into a contract for himself, but he only enters the contract for his principal, that is, for the company of whom he is a director and for whom he is acting. He cannot sue on such contracts nor be sued on them unless he exceeds his authority. So a trustee is not an agent. An agent represents an act for his principal, who may be either a natural or artificial person. A trustee may be defined generally as a person in whom some estate, interest, or power in or affecting property is vested with the benefit of another. When an agent contracts in the name of his principal, the principal contract is bound, but the agent is not. So when a trustee contracts, y'all, right, he is bound, no one is bound. I said again, when a trustee contracts as such, he is bound. No one is bound, for he has no principle. So the trust estate cannot compromise. The contract is therefore the personal undertaking of the trustee. So if a trustee contracting for the benefit of the trust wants to protect himself from uh, individual uh, 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 liability of the contract, essentially, he must stipulate that he is not to be personally responsible, but that the other party is to look solely to the trust estate. Look, man, I'm trying to tell y'all something here. There is no analogy between uh, an instrument which establishes an agency and one which creates a trust. The shit's the same. It's the same, man. And and they go hand in hand, and they work like that. Okay? Okay? So where an agency exists, the principal at any moment can interfere. And at all times, he is in legal contemplation and control of the business. So not not so when the party has parted with the title to his property and has created a trust which vests in such trustee the right to manage the business as the proprietor. Therefore, he is accountable to the beneficiary, not as his principal, but as a mere sesecute trust under the terms of the trust instrument. And I'm going to leave it there because 
you know, they cut me off early, and y'all know how that goes. So it's the trust instrument, man. The trust instrument is extremely important. The trust instrument includes the, the injunction. It includes your declaration of trust. It includes all of that, man. So the trust is uh, the trust is the contract, right? It, and listen, the trust is said by um, contractual means, if you will, to resolve around the contractual retainer between the settler and the trustee. So it is suggested, right, that the outset of the argument cannot hope to describe constructive. Resulting or implied trust and therefore requires a dismantling of all embracing definition of a trust. It also fails to provide a complete analyst of even express trust given that there are express trusts which are recognized to have come into existence without the conscious action of the party, let alone the formation of contract between the settler and the trustee. We got to continue to work on these express trusts. It ain't a one and done thing. You can't just set it up and walk away. You got to continue with that shit. You got to continue to build on it. Right? And I'll say this over and over again, right? Because trusts are not bound up with the contract. A lot of them are not. In relation, right, to commercial practice, it will commonly be the case that there will indeed be a commercial contract which uses trust as a device to hold securities for payments or a contract for services whereby some person will be limiting their liability and identifying their fee in return for uh, acting as trustee. Go watch the movie John Wick. What do you think John Wick was about? They were trying to kill John Wick, and everybody had a contract. He had a contract on his head. That's what that shit was about the whole time. Don't get it twisted, man. This shit... Is real life. What they show you in the movie, right, is 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 imitating life. But you need to understand what's really going on. They don't want you getting this information. Call lines are wide open, man. If you want to holler, question number one. Five one five six zero two. Nine seven nine three. Five one five six zero two nine seven nine three. Question one. We're going to take a very quick break. This time, I, I'm going to straight the, the pause, and we'll be right back. Keep it locked. Don't go nowhere.
right? And that all of the beneficiaries that acting together and constituting the whole of the equitable interest are entitled to direct the trustee how to deal with the property, whether by means of rewriting the trust and effect of terminating it, right? Um, so you either rewrite the trust or you terminate it and you make another one, right? But that the settler has no right to be consulted directly, right? And they call it qua settler, right? In the absence of any express provisions in the new trust instrument, to the contrary. So it's evident that those cases in which two settlers of marriage consideration have um, sought to, to get a divorce, if you will, the trust, once the marriage is failed, in such circumstances, the qua settlers, right, they had no such power in the cases where not the beneficiaries having identified other relatives having equitable interest in the marriage settlement. So understand this, right? And I'll leave y'all with this. If you feel like the trust needs to be reconstructed, do it. Put the provisions in your trust, right? Put the, the injunction in the declaration. Right, write in the declaration, hey, there's an injunction page or whatever. But make sure that this is done properly. Make sure that the settler, uh, that there's a clause in there for the settler to be consulted. Because if you do a trust and you hand your shit over to a trustee, you then have lost your power. This is why I tell y'all, make yourself the trustee. Make yourself the beneficiary. Right? Get, set the trust up and then give the power over to yourself until you find a motherfucker that you can trust. Because people are scammers out here. Niggas will try to take your shit, right? And, and you have to make sure that you stay on top of this at every step. Every step. You have to rewrite the trust history. Take the time to sit down and rewrite. If you need help, I'll at me. Makemorecommerce.com. You know, you can hit me on Instagram, Facebook, whatever. You know, and, and I and I will consult you on how to do this, how to get this done. Or come out to the web to the seminars. I've done some free webinars. I'll probably do a couple of more free webinars here soon. You know, but, but we have to make sure that we get this down packed. That we overstand what's happening here. It's a lifetime trust. You're not a prisoner. You're not a slave. Slavery ended a long time ago. Right? We free. And with us being free, we have the right, we have the duty and the responsibility to protect ourselves, to protect our family, to protect our property, protect ourselves as property, right? As your own property. You have the duty to do that. All right. So with that being said, man, I'm going to get up out of here. Uh, next week, I'll be in New York. Please come out. We'll be at the Carbon Juice Lounge. All right, it's the 8th of July, and then we'll be in Miami on the 22nd. I look forward to seeing y'all there. All right, we're going we're gonna to disseminate a lot of great information. All right, this is what time it is. Freedom is not free. You have to work for it, right? You have to make sure. And when I say work for it, I'm not talking about physical labor. I'm talking about you have to use your mind and your mental prowess to get this shit accomplished. Right? It takes a lot of study. It takes it takes a village, man. You know, we have to raise each other up. You know, everybody's so you know, you got a lot of people out here who wanna keep you down, who don't wanna see you rise above the threat. I say rise up. Become the best you that you can be. 
continue to grow, continue to learn. Like this information, you will never get in one day. It's a lifetime worth of information. This is why trust is continuously um, changed. This is why, you know, you have a, a large trust who has been around for 100 years. Look at the Rockefeller Trust and the Rothschilds Trust. These trusts have been around forever. And they do banking and they control your monetary system and they control your money. Things like that. Right? Use the Constitution if you have to. Use the treaties if you have to. Find new treaties if you need to. Right? But go in peace. And do it in peace. And do it in good will. And, and, and do it so that you can help others. That's that's the whole purpose of this. This goes beyond you and I. This is for your posterity. Right? This is to benefit you, but it's also to benefit those who come after you. Remember that. So, I'll leave you in peace. I will be back next week. Uh, we've got, next week we've got, uh, we've, so, we have Dr. Offset uh, on Wednesday. Make sure you tune in to her show. Healing with Dr. Offset. Uh, we have uh, a metaphysics show, which I'm planning on bringing back this week. We'll be going into uh, time travel and things like that. Some really interesting subjects. I'll have some guests on next upcoming few weeks. Um, and then we will um, resume our open forum Fridays. So I'm trying to get everything back on board, man. I really appreciate y'all continuing to rock with me. Please spread the word. Tell people who you know. Listen to the shows. All right. Um, these shows will also be on podcasts. Um, and I'll start putting shows back up on um, our um, our platform on SoundCloud. All right. Um, all right. So with that being said, man, if there's no questions, nobody wants to um, raise their hand. I'm gonna get up out of here. I'm gonna say peace to the gods. Um, y'all have a great weekend. Be Sunday to y'all, and we out, man. Peace to the gods. Hey,